morning. We're in Genesis chapter 12. I know we uh, completed our studies in Genesis uh, just last Lord's Day, but uh, we want to begin today by going back to Genesis chapter 12, a little bit of revision perhaps uh, for some of us, but uh, very important that we take in this passage and think about our subject matter uh, for today and for the next two or three weeks after. We're going to think about Israel as the land of promise. Israel is the land of promise. And I want to begin reading in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to his precious, eternal, and immutable word. There is no place on earth more significant to the plan and program of God than the land of Israel. Israel is a land that is some 263 miles long and at its widest point is only 71 miles wide. It is an area of just 13,000 square miles, making it one of the smallest nations on earth, one-eighteenth the size of the United Kingdom in terms of land mass. And yet this tiny land features large in the plan and program of God. To the Jew, the land is everything. For it represents not just a piece of real estate, but the very blessings of God upon his covenant people. In the words of one writer, of all the promises made to the patriarchs, it was that of the land that was the most prominent and decisive. The ongoing battle for Israel is not about politics or property, but it's a battle for the very heart of the Jewish nation. It's a spiritual battle which shall be brought to its climax when the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time. Now I want to speak to you today about this land, Israel, the land of promise. It's a remarkable land, there's no doubt about that. In terms of its location, it sits as a land bridge between Asia, Africa and Europe. Essentially it sits at the very center of the world. It has been the marching ground of many armies throughout history, some coming from the north, some arriving in from the south. 
But wave after wave of conquerors have found their way to the land of Israel and wind their way through the land. And it's hard to imagine any other land on earth of similar size that has had such a pivotal role in human history as has had the nation of Israel. The land itself is very diverse. There is desert in the south and snow-capped mountains in the north. It's bordered by Lebanon and by Syria, by Jordan and by Egypt. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea. And within her borders to the north, we find the large freshwater lake that you and I know as the Sea of Galilee. And to the south along her eastern border is the toxic sea that we know as the Dead Sea, which marks the earth's lowest point. What a remarkable piece of territory this is. Fertile to the north, hostile in the south. But make no mistake about it, this land is God's land. And he has given it to the Jewish people. Now, that's not a political statement. That is a biblical statement. Today, the population of Israel sits at 9.3 million people of of around which 7 million are Jewish people. This Jewish homeland sits now as a signal to the world that you are living in the last days and Christ is soon to appear. I would be a delinquent preacher if I did not bring your attention to that. I wouldn't be a false teacher if I denied that truth. The fact of the matter is that whilst thousands upon thousands of people are marching the streets of the world's great cities, waving Palestinian flags in opposition to the actions of Israel and Gaza, God is simultaneously waving the nation of Israel at the nations to tell you that Jesus is on his way. Now I want to think about the promise of the land. The land that we call Israel has had many designations down through the years. When Abraham arrived there, it was known as the land of Canaan. But it had many other names and has had many other names, mostly associated with the people who lived there. The Canaanites were there, of course, when Abraham entered, and so at times we read of it as the land of Canaan, other times read of it as the land of the Amorites, uh, or as Moses puts it in Exodus chapter 3, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt onto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites onto a land flowing with milk and honey. Now it was the emperor Hadrian in 135 A.D., who changed the name of Israel and adopted for it the name Palestine, which is a derivative of the name Philistine. And we know that the Philistines inhabited a piece of territory that is now also in the news. That piece of land that we call the Gaza Strip was the home of the Philistines in ancient times. There are many today who wish that the land as a whole was still called Palestine. But understand, friends, for those of us for whom our understanding of the world is shaped by the Bible, it has been and always will be known as Israel. 
You see, we cannot get away from the fact that God made certain promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And at the heart of those promises was the possession of this land. Look at verse 7 of our reading this morning. It couldn't be made any clearer. God says to Abraham of that particular piece of ground, he says, unto thy seed will I give this land. Now that is a promise of God. And God keeps his promises. In fact, God made that promise not to Abraham alone, but to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants, to the tribes of Israel and the nation of Israel that came out of those tribes. And that fact cannot be contested. And it's with this promise that the story of the nation of Israel begins. Now, there are those who question the authority of God to arbitrarily take land off one group of people and hand it to another group of people. They say, well, what right had the God of the Jews to come into the land and to take the, the land that belonged to the Canaanites and the other people groups and to give it on to Abraham and his descendants? But you've got to remember two things this morning. First of all, the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all they that dwell therein. So everything belongs to God. But I want you to notice in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23 that this land in particular is said to be the Lord's land. This land belongs to God. He has claimed it for himself. And notice what he says to the Jews as they are preparing to enter the land. He says in verse 23, the land shall not be sold forever. Notice what he says, for the land is mine. I want you to get that. The land of Israel belongs to the Lord. This is Jehovah's land. And when somebody owns something, they can do with it whatever they please. Now, that's just a matter of property ownership, isn't it? A number of years ago, we had a preacher come and speak at our church in Belfast. And the preacher said to me on the way in, he says, listen, you wouldn't do us a favor, he says, well, but cash strap. He says, would you give us 10 pounds? I says, of course I'll give you 10 pounds. He says, no, it's not a loan. He says, I want you to, would you just give it to me? He says, of course I'll give it to you. So I gave him 10 pounds. And he was way happy. I didn't mind. 10 pounds wasn't a lot of money to give somebody if they're cash strapped. And so, you know, it was done date off he went. So he's preaching his sermon. And in his sermon, he produces this 10 pounds that I gave him. And he says to the congregation, a few moments ago, I asked your pastor if he would give me 10 pounds, and he very kindly gave me 10 pounds. And he said to me, right in front of everybody, now you did give me this, and it is mine, isn't it? And I says, yes, it is. He took out then a little basin, and he began to set fire to the 10 pounds, and he burnt it in front of the entire congregation, which I have to say, rather upset me. But uh, it rather surprised the congregation. Everybody kind of took, had a sort of collective intake of breath that he was burning this money that I had given him. But he made the point that the money was his. That if I had given it to him, he could do with it whatever he wanted. And then he made a greater point when he says, you know, you're all rather shocked that the pastor gave me 10 pounds and I wasted it, but God has given you a life and you're wasting it. 
And I thought that was a great point, and that illustration always uh, stuck with me. Uh, but he was quite right. That £10 was his. By the way, he gave me £10 at the end of the service, so it's okay. Uh, anyway, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but the point is, it was his to do with whatever he willed. And so it is with the land of Israel. God, in an act of divine sovereignty, granted the land that was his, that had been claimed by men as the territory of Canaan. He, in an act of divine sovereignty, gave that land to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So Abraham in response to God's command in Genesis 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord, moved into the land, settled in the land, and later on in the book of Genesis, and you'll remember this well, God ratifies the, uh, the agreement, the covenant, the giving of the land, and what's called the Abrahamic covenant. And this he does by means of a ceremony in which he puts Abraham to sleep and he winds his way around these carcasses of animals that were divided, which was the means by which people ratified agreements in that day. And so God made a unilateral agreement with Abraham that all of the blessings contained in the Abrahamic covenant, and especially the land blessing, was really God's obligation. God had, had taken this oath, if you like. He had made this promise. He had given this covenant, and he passed it on to Abraham. Abraham had no part in it. There was nothing he had to do. But God's very character rests upon the fulfillment of this agreement, on the fulfillment of this promise to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants. Now, I want you to look with me again in Genesis chapter 12, and I want you to notice the problem with the land. There's a problem with this land, and the problem is stated with candor and succinctly stated at the end of verse 6. For God wants Abraham to be clear. It says, And the Canaanite was then in the land. All right, this land was not a free land. Here's the problem. It wasn't a free land. It wasn't like the land that the pioneers and the settlers found when they went to North America. You know, it wasn't great plains that were just sitting wide open, begging to be taken and settled. It wasn't the outback of Australia uh, waiting to be claimed uh, by men. It was a land that was already occupied. It was a land that was already uh, already uh, populated and heavily populated. It was in the possession of several different people groups. Now, if you glance at Genesis chapter 15 for a moment, I want you to see verse 18 downward, and I want you to see that God again states the promise, and he highlights the problem. He states the promise, and he highlights the problem. Verse 18, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt... Unto the river, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gergesites and the Jebusites. You see, God gave this land with all the people that were contained within it to Abraham. Now, the reason that these people lived there was it was a good land. It was a good place to live. It was a, it was a fertile land. It was a good place to farm. 
It was a land that was, in the words of Scripture, flowing with milk and honey. Many years ago, I, I went to a lecture, an archaeological lecture, uh, and, and I'm, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the, the lecturer, but he was the uh, head of biblical archaeology at Oxford University at the time, and uh, he was talking about Israel as a land of milk and honey. And he began to explain how that this, this matter of Israel being a, a nation that produced honey in ancient times had been questioned by others. And they suggested that there were no bee farms, uh, no honey farms in Israel. But they subsequently found that there in fact was uh, honey farms in Israel. And that even uh, the people within the cities themselves had beehives made out of mud. And they found these because, as you can imagine, if you make a beehive out of mud with the passage of time, it's not going to last very long. It's certainly not going to be there for archaeologists to find. find. But on this particular occasion, they found one town, and they were surprised to find in the middle of the town multiple uh, hives in which the people were producing great amounts of honey. And I think from recollection, he said something like this, that the, that the land of Israel, they calculated then that the land of Israel during the time of the reign of King Solomon was exporting something like uh, 400 tons of honey a year, which is phenomenal. It really was a land flowing with milk and with honey. But it was far more than that because it represents for the Jewish people the very word of God to them. And I want you to listen to God's word to them during the time of the Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 5 for a moment. Exodus chapter 5. Now remember after the time of Abraham, the people went into slavery uh, and they spent some 400 years in Egypt, even as God predicted to Abraham they would, until Moses came along and led the Exodus and brought them across the Red Sea and ultimately uh, to, the, uh, to the edge uh, of the Canaan land. But in verse 22, it says, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? Moses having a doubt about his commission. He says, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Things have got harder, not easier. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. What a charge. He says, God, you told me I'm going to leave these people out, but that hasn't happened. And then verse 1 of chapter 6, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of this land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. Now watch what he says. And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. El should I. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And I have also established, notice, I have established my covenant with them. To do what? To give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And notice, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say I unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egypt, the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out of from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. And notice God has a fourfold plan in that particular passage. His plan was to deliver them. He said he's going to bring them out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That he will rid them of their bondage. He will redeem them. I love this phrase. He will redeem them with a stretched out arm. That's what the Lord Jesus did on Calvary's cross. He redeemed them with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. He told them he had formed them into a a, a godly community. He says, I'll take you to me for a people and I will be for you a God. And then he said that they would have an ongoing intimate relationship with him as his people. He said, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And all of that would take place within the confines of the good and pleasant land promised to their forefathers. I will bring you again into the land concerning which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage. It's yours, God says, by right. I am the Lord. Now, all of this, friends, is critical. When you're watching the news at night, and you're watching the BBC, dear Lord, help you. Watching that bunch of clowns reporting on Israel. But if you're watching the BBC or some of the other mainstream media, you've got to understand what's going on. You see, that piece of land that we call Israel is far more than just a parcel of ground in the Middle East. It's not just a tract of the earth. It's a symbol to them of the blessings of God upon the Jewish people. Khalil Muhammad, an associate professor of religion at San Diego State University, said this based on the Quran. He said that Israel belongs to the Jews. Here's exactly what he said. He says, it's in the Muslim consciousness that the land first belonged to the Jews. It doesn't matter if the Jews were exiled 500 years or 2,000 years. The Holy Land, as mentioned in the Quran, belongs to Moses and his people, the Jews. Now, that's a Muslim academic. That's a man who understands Islam. A man who is well read in the Quran. And he's telling us that the Quran acknowledges that the land of Israel is given to Moses and to his descendants. Now the promises of God to them then are bound up in their history and in the geography of the land. And and so strong is their connection with it that their culture reflects ties with the land almost at every point. At the end of every Passover they cry, next year in Jerusalem. At every Jewish wedding, they break a glass and trample on it in remembrance of the loss of their temple and the dispersal of the the Jews around the world from the land. 
The scriptures say this, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Every single day, three times a day, the prayers of the Jewish people bring to mind the centrality of this land to them. They pray, Father of mercies, do good in thy favor unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. Every Jew the world over is focused upon Jerusalem. Every Jew the world over is concentrated in his mind upon that land. And here's the thing that you've got to know and you've got to bear this in mind. That not one time in the entire Quran is the city of Jerusalem referenced. Not once. And yet if you were listening to Islamic extremists, they'd have you believe that Jerusalem is a holy city central to Islamic worship. It is no such thing. Not once in the Quran. Check it out. Your Old Testament. How many times is Jerusalem mentioned? 667 times. 667 times. In the words of Rabbi Heschel, the love of the land was due to an imperative, not an instinct, not a sentiment. There is a covenant, an engagement of the people to the land. To abandon the land would be to make a mockery of all our longings, prayers, and commitments. To abandon the land would be, in his words, to repudiate the Bible. Now the problem for the modern Israeli is exactly the same as his ancient Israelite counterpart. There are those in the land who lay claim to the territory. But the Jews cannot and they will not abandon their claim to the land. And and this problem is politically stated by the insistence of the world, largely led by the United Nations, to refer to the Golan Heights, to Judea, to East Jerusalem, uh, and to the Gaza Strip as occupied territories. And you hear that term all the time. You know, here's, here's the other, anybody who's thinking about this would realize there's something wrong here. One minute the BBC tells you that the Gaza Strip is an occupied territory, and the next minute they tell you that the Israeli army is invading it. Well, why would you invade an, a, a territory that's occupied? That's stupid. If they're they're occupying it, they don't need to invade it. And if they're invading it, they certainly haven't occupied it. The truth of the matter is that the people of Gaza could be left to their own devices if they chose so to be. That they could live peaceably, that the Jews and the people of Israel were supplying their water and their electricity, as you know. They were giving them access into the land of Israel for daily work, as you know. But constantly, Hamas and extremists in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank and in uh, in Lebanon have been biting the hand to feed them. And so we have this problem that's politically stated by this notion that somehow or other these so-called Palestinian territories are occupied by Israel. And this problem is faced in the church by the insistence on some 
that the covenant of which you've just read in Genesis chapter 12 has now been annulled as a consequence of the Jewish people rejecting Christ as their saviour. Now that would be a fair and reasonable argument if the covenant was conditional upon Jewish behaviour. But we've already made the point. This is a unilateral covenant. Abraham was not party to it. Abraham was anesthetized during it. He was out cold. He knew nothing of what was going on except what he saw in a vision. And when he awoke, he signed his name to nothing. This was entirely God's doing. Now I want you to think about the prospects of the land. The question arises, how is this conflict going to be settled? Who owns the land? And what will be the outcome of the conflict? Well, this conflict begins all the way back in Old Testament times. It continues to this very hour, as you know. And the answer lies in this covenant. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. You see, the future of Israel is secured in the Abrahamic covenant. The future of the land is secured in the Abrahamic covenant. Because God gave the land... To Abraham. He promised the land to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants, and he's not going to change his mind about any of that. Look in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment, verse 13. And notice it references this promise that was made to Abraham. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. So this is a promise that rests upon God's own honor. God swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And then if you drop your eye down a little bit to verse 17, When God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, the immutability, that means the unchangeability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It's very interesting that when the writer of the book of Hebrews is wanting to reassure Messianic Jews concerning the immutability of God, he points to the Abrahamic covenant as an illustration. In other words, the reader is assured that God's word is unchanging and that his promises are unchangeable. That's why it reads there that God swore by himself. You cannot swear by a higher authority than God. And there is no higher authority than God. And so God has no one else to swear by but by himself. And the writer calls us to our attention to God's oath. Here God makes an oath. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Who's the heirs of promise? The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he was willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel the unchangeability of his decision. And then it says that he confirmed it by an oath. Now look with me in Psalm 105 for a moment. Because I want you to see something really important about this particular covenant. Psalm 105. 
Psalm 105, and I want to begin reading in verse 5. Psalm 105 and verse 5. I looked up at the clock there. It said two minutes to one. I thought, oh my goodness, I've gone long this morning. But no, it's all right. I need to change that. Okay, verse 5. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. Notice what he calls the children of Jacob, his chosen. They're the elect. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Now watch what it says. He hath remembered his covenant. What? What's those next two words say? Forever. doesn't say just until they mess up. No, it says forever. The words which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel. So you see how this thing is passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the nation. Notice what it says. For an everlasting covenant. Well, what is the everlasting covenant? Saying, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, strangers in the land. Now, what is that telling you? It's telling you that the Abrahamic covenant is unchangeable. It's telling you that the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant is perpetual, that it is eternal, that it can never be annulled, that it can never be turned around, that God is not going to change his mind about it. Now, Abraham, in his day, did not see the fulfillment of that promise. He did not see the land of Israel being handed to his descendants. Neither did Isaac, nor indeed did Jacob, nor even, as we saw last Sunday morning, did Joseph. In fact, no Jew in all of history has seen the promise of God pertaining to this land coming to its fullest. Uh, fullest uh, realization. You know, when you look at the borders of this land, you know, if people are worried about the Jewish borders today, let me tell you, there's a big shock coming. Because someday, the border of Israel is going to stretch all the way into Egypt. It's going to stretch all the way out to Iraq. It's going to take in most of Syria. It's going to push northward into Turkey. And we're not quite sure how far it's going to go southward, but I have a fair idea it's going to go beyond the Dead Sea. And so, at no time has Israel ever possessed that degree of territory, which raises the question as to when, and indeed if they ever will. You know, but I want you to go with me to Zechariah. Now, we've been looking on Wednesday nights, and we've just completed there on Wednesday night past this little series on the minor prophets, and so this will be familiar to those of you who came out on Wednesday night. But I want to go to Zechariah chapter 2. Because I want you to see what God said concerning this land and 
And really, if you go into Zechariah chapter 1, you have a red horseman coming through the myrtle trees. The myrtles are symbolic of Israel. Chapter 2 and verse 1, he has a measuring line on his hand. That's a, a tool of occupation. And then you get to verse, uh, verse 10 through, uh, through 12. And here's what it says in chapter 2 of Zechariah, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come and will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord, notice, shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Now understand that during the time of, uh, of, uh, of the captivity, during the time of the destruction of the temple just prior to it, the presence of God left the Holy of Holies, uh, left the Shekinah glory, moved out of the Holy of Holies, into the holy place, out the floor of the temple, uh, across the Kidron Valley, down that valley, up the other side of the Mount of Olives, and ascended on high. And if you go to the end of the book of Ezekiel, the Lord Jesus comes back and he takes exactly the same route. He comes to the Mount of Olives and he goes through the Kidron Valley, he crosses that valley, through the eastern gate, up into the temple. He goes through the front doors of the temple, through the holy place, into the holiest of all, and he sits down in the holy place. Between the moment that the Shekinah glory left and the moment that the Lord Jesus returns, God has not inhabited that site in person. In that way. He vacated it. But here in Zechariah he says, listen, I will dwell in the midst of thee. He said, I'm not left forever. I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again. By the way, notice Judah shall inherit his portion in the holy land. This is the only place in the entire word of God where Israel as a nation, as a land, is referred to as the holy land. Maybe you've went on a tour to Israel and they said, you know, come, we're, we're taking a tour to the holy land. Well, it's not a holy land. Not now. Nor has it ever been a holy land to this point. It wasn't a holy land in Abraham's day. In Abraham's day, as we've just read, it was filled with various uh, tribal groups, all of which were pagan and heathen and worshipped idols. It wasn't holy in, uh, in Joshua's day. Joshua had to battle for the land. He conquered it uh, largely, but he left little pockets of it yet unconquered. It wasn't a holy land in David's day, for David too was battling within and without against enemies of Israel. It wasn't a holy land during the period of the kings. It wasn't a holy land during the period of the captivity uh, because the Jews themselves desecrated it with idolatry. It wasn't a holy land in the days of the Lord Jesus was he was, when he was on earth. Remember, uh, they nailed him to a cross. And it isn't a holy land today. It's a Western-style liberal democracy, just the same as our own country, with all the same problems and all of the same manifestations of wickedness that we see on our own, uh, in our own culture. And so Israel today tolerates every kind of sin. The only time Israel is deemed to be the Holy Land is when Jesus comes again and his presence sanctifies that land Forever, and his rule cleanses the land of every pagan 
form. Friends, I want you to get this this morning. The land belongs to the Jew. It has done. From the day that God said to Abraham, unto thee I will give this land. This land matters. It features large because God promised it to Abraham and to his descendants, the Jews. You know, it's very interesting if you listen to some of the statements coming from Israel right now. Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, uh, he cast this present battle with Gaza in its broadest context as, in his words, a 3,000-year-old battle for Jewish survival. You say, well, this battle only began two weeks ago, three weeks ago. No, it didn't. This battle began 3,000 years ago. If you go back 3,000 years, where does it take you? It takes you to Abraham. He goes right back to the covenant. And he says, for 3,000 years, we've been battling to maintain this land. For 3,000 years. Abraham didn't enjoy the fullness of it. Nor did Isaac, nor Jacob, nor Moses, nor Joshua, nor David, or any other Jew in all of history, but understand something about that land. The covenant of God rests upon it. It marks the focal point of God's dealings with man upon this planet. That land is the only enduring physical place for the outworking of God's purposes and plans. This is the land, and I want you to get this this morning, this is the land to which Jesus will return. And that's what makes Israel so important. And that's why it's significant within the plan of God. And that is why even in this late hour, the Jewish people are battling to hold it. The Prime Minister of Israel is not exaggerating when he says that this is a battle for the very survival of the nation. That isn't just rhetoric. It isn't just some sound bite that he's thrown out there to be grabbed by newspaper editors for headlines. No, friends, that's the reality. That's the reality. The land belongs to the Jew. It's the land of promise. And listen, I don't care who's against them. Even as in the other day, 120 nations voted against them in the United Nations. It matters not one bit. God gave those people that land. They're there by right and they're there to stay until Jesus comes. And you and I need to be on the right side of the argument. And the right side of the argument is God's side. Let's pray.